Talks, a chat with Finance Malta, is the podcast series that gives you short, thoughtful and regular insights from leading experts of the financial services industry. I'm Vanessa MacDonald. Welcome. Welcome to this Finance Malta FinTalks podcast. And here with us today, we've got Luke Healy, who is the Associated Ganado for Insurance. This is a very specific topic, Luke, and I'm really interested to find out exactly what the links are between insurance and the ESG, environmental, social and governance that we hear about so much. Let's start with, with, with really understanding a little bit about the insurance industry in Malta. The premiums in 2022 were just over 600 million, and that's just Malta alone. That's actually goes into a fund which has to grow. So that's actually quite a lot of leverage. So maybe we can start there. Yeah, most definitely. So first off, I'd really like to thank you for the opportunity to be part of this um, podcast series. Great initiative on Finance Malta's behalf, most definitely. Um, so I think that prior to actually delving into the question proper, we'd need to caveat it somewhat and that naturally in so far as we're talking about the premium or the premiums rather, which have been collected for the year, it's not as though there is a carte blanche for those to be reinvested into anything under the sun. Naturally, insurance undertakings will have their own regulatory capital requirements. They need to make sure that they have sufficient capital to meet liabilities and the like. Ergo meaning that not all of that 600 million is going to somehow be leveraged for ESG aims. But insofar as we're naturally focusing on the ESG as part of this podcast episode, then the way I like to think of it is that we need to make a bit of a distinction, perhaps, between the what I would call the own account investments. So what the insurers are actually doing themselves with the monies in order to you know further their own financial position and also what the insurer is doing vis-a-vis, for example, the underlying client and so far as we're talking about IBIPs, so the very famous and notorious IBIPs which brought the SFDR into the equation. Insofar as we're talking about the own account investments, something which I can mention straight off the bat and which we will focus on later on in the podcast episode as well, um, is the fact that as of the 2nd of August 2022, there was a bit of a revamp or overhaul of the system of governance of reinsurance undertakings or insurance undertakings. And as part of the main points which have been hit by that overhaul is the fact that when investing its monies, that is the insurance undertaking or reinsurance undertaking is investing its monies, um, in accordance with the prudent person principle, which is an age-old principle under solvency too, it now also needs to take into account sustainability risks as opposed to what it would normally have considered um, in terms of any other risks which could potentially have an impact on the investment. And I think that the time is opportune now as well to immediately focus on what sustainability risks mean, as opposed to potentially as well principal adverse impacts on sustainability factors because out there in the market there's a bit of a misnomer and the MFSA as well as part of its guidance which is issued thus far has pinpointed the fact that there's a bit of a some confusion rather in terms of how our regulated undertakings are considering the integration of sustainability risks and the considerations of PAIs. Some undertakings are considering them to be one and the same thing whereas they're actually not because they actually connote different aspects. So the integration of sustainability risk is somewhat different in that it focuses on financial materiality. So insofar as there were to be adverse environmental, social or governance events occurring now or in the future, what effect could that potentially have on the value of my investment? So that's an outside-in approach, as opposed to impact materiality. 
So that is where the PAIs come in. So insofar as I'm stating that I'm considering the principal adverse impacts of my investment decision making on sustainability factors, I am naturally then saying that I am considering how my investment decision making is in turn affecting the environment at large. So they're two sides of the same coin, but they're different. One connotes an outside-in approach, the other connotes an inside-out approach. And what we've seen as well advising clients, that there are a variety of ways and methodologies in which the monies which are being invested can be leveraged to achieve ESG aims, prime amongst which is having an ESG framework in place. Unfortunately, what we've seen is that those entities which fall within the SFDR scope and which are technically required to have some form of framework would come to us to help them draft an ESG framework or an ESG policy. But other undertakings who do not form part of the scope of SFDR have been perhaps a bit more reticent. And what we're seeing, even in terms of, you know, the onus which the MFSA is making on sustainable finance going forward, is that it's very likely to become a prerequisite, and it should be a prerequisite for all entities going forward, to have this form of framework in order to make sure that these risks are being completely identified. Other ways in which premiums can be leveraged to achieve ESG aims, if and then so far as, for example, the insurance undertaking is appointing an asset manager to invest its monies, it can look to appoint those managers who are themselves signatories to international standards such as the principles of responsible investment, or I believe as well the principles of sustainable insurance, right? And that gives the insurance undertaking some form of comfort that when the asset manager is investing monies on its behalf, that asset manager is taking into account ESG risks. And lastly as well, something which we have seen is that even when, for example, boards discuss um, the nature of their investment portfolio, they would take it upon themselves to dedicate a percentage of that investment portfolio to investments in green products, green bonds, sustainability-linked bonds, and the like. So those are all, I believe, ways and means in which these monies can be invested to further ESG factors. You've talked about things like the asset managers being part of, you know, a certain certification or accreditation, etc., etc., etc. However, when you're talking about all these these things, they're, they're actually quite new. Uh, the taxonomy for <coughs> ESG was only recently agreed on. In, and, you know, if you're looking at decades, it's really a very short time, especially uh, with all the regulatory impositions which are going to come into force over the coming Most years definitely. as well. Are there actually enough people out there with that kind of expertise? And, and what, what is being done about it to try and train people and, and upskill them? Yeah. So I'd say that the short answer is no. I would, however, say there's a saving grace and that there is um, increased awareness in the market, specifically in Malta. In fact, in the course of my research, I did come across a couple of stats, which I believe were issued by LinkedIn which stated that Malta ranks amongst the highest EU member states with an appetite for sustainability accreditation or courses and the like. And in fact, as well, I mean, having a look at um, social media nowadays, you'll find that a, a lot of audit firms, consultancy firms, and obviously even ourselves, sometimes we organize webinars and training sessions for our clients, for companies, and also as part of CPD sessions, for example, would have dedicated modules um, on ESG. So training is most definitely on the up. And I would say that this newfound awareness also connotes the fact that the insurance market is fully realizing and recognizing the risks of climate change. And sometimes I feel a bit off just focusing on climate change or the E and ESG. 
but this is something which has been implemented even at EU Commission level. You'll note that the EU's taxonomy, which you mentioned earlier, only really and truly sets out an environmental taxonomy at this point in time. For the gr- it sets out the green package, six really. environmental exactly, objectives. Yes. Does Is there a social taxonomy? Not yet. Still in the pipeline. Goes to show that we're basically firefighting. And at this point in time, we need to have our priorities in order. And the priority is tackling climate change. Climate change is going to have such a major impact on people's livelihoods. Most definitely. And it's uncanny that you've mentioned this because I'm going to be focusing on two principal risks which insurers are now taking into account. It's the physical risk and the transition risk. Okay. So when talking about physical risk, we are in turn making reference to the fact that as climate change becomes worse and adverse weather events become more commonplace, that's naturally going to have a direct impact on the insurance market. Meaning that it must be a nightmare for underwriting and, of course. and for so <laughs> calculating, of, of you know, course. premiums and exactly. so on. Where would you even start? Exactly. So obviously, for the clients, there are or there could be substantial um, entities which are effectively priced out of the market because naturally the recurrence of these events or the continued recurrence of these events will need to be factored into the premium. In fact, a very very interesting news article I came across uh, these past couple of months and which I've just remembered is the fact that in the US. Two of the largest insurance undertakings, Allstate and State Farm, have stopped writing property coverage in the state of California altogether because of wildfires. And the reasons which they cited is obviously the fact that they will need to factor this risk into the premium, effectively marginalizing a number of property owners, as well as the fact that they themselves will find it difficult to reinsure their own risk with reinsurers. So they are also priced out of the market as well. So there's a massive hardening of the insurance market in That's this sense. We start looking at flood-prone exactly. zones and, exactly. and so on. Bang on the money. So that is the physical risk of it all. And then there's also the transition risk, which perhaps I would say also makes a bit more sense from an investment's perspective. So insofar as I've invested my monies in those industries which are carbon intensive, and the push nowadays is for those carbon intensive industries to leave behind their bread and butter and transition into a cleaner way of operating, that could, in turn, lead to a hit on their stock price. Ergo, meaning that my investment in that particular industry is also going to take a hit. So there are these physical risks and these transition risks which are at play, and insurance undertakings and beyond um, will do well to understand what these risks are and see how best um, uh, to combat them. Gosh, how interesting. There's also another part of all of this, which is the the actual reporting side of it, which is now obviously a, a matter of regulation. How? What is the situation now with, with NFRD and CSRD? That's quite the question. It's fully loaded. So prior to focusing on NFRD and CSRD, I think that it would be amiss not to mention what's been going on in terms of SFRD and the taxonomy regulation over the past couple of years. So you'll know that as of the 10th of March 2021, the first set of requirements under SFDR came into force. And this basically mandated a number of insurance undertakings who make available IBIPs to the public, as well as those advisors who provide insurance advice in relation to IBIPs, to upload an number of website disclosures as well as draft a number of pre-contractual disclosures in order to better show how they are integrating sustainability risks. So what we mentioned earlier, 
whether or not they are um, considering the principal adverse impacts of their investment decisions on sustainability factors, how they are reflecting this in their remuneration policies, and insofar as they happen to have any products which have environmental or social characteristics, which promote those characteristics, or which have sustainable investment as an objective, those undertakings will in turn need to carry out some more onerous reporting. As of the 1st of January 2023, another bomb hit us in that the Level 2 requirements came into force and entities have been scrambling um, to make sure that the PAI statements which they need to prepare insofar as they consider PAIs are up to scratch because there's quite a template there which was proposed as part of the regulatory technical standards issued by the European Commission which necessitates liaison with service providers, uh, third party or otherwise, uh, qualitative and quantitative data, percentages showing how as part of its activities the entity in question when investing in that industry or the like is affecting these mandatory PAI requirements or indicators rather. So a lot has been going on on the SFDR um, front. Most definitely. It's one of the most live areas of the regulatory regime, if you will. Now, turning to NFRD and CSRD, I would say that the NFRD is probably not all too relevant for most Maltese undertakings. I must admit, I'm not certain whether any Maltese undertakings fall, Actually fall under the, fall under the, the remit, regime, yes. given that there is quite an onerous threshold for large undertakings and the fact that they need to have in excess of 500 employees. We don't have many of that here in Malta. Although I won't discount the fact that there could be the possibility that a Maltese undertaking would be plugged in to some form of consolidated non-financial statement at parent company level, for example, elsewhere in uh, in the European Union. So that's definitely a possibility. But now CSRD is going to be much wider in scope. So whereas an FRD captured around 11,000 entities in the European Union, CSRD is going to bump that up to over 50,000. And that's because all listed entities, be they large or SMEs, are going to be covered and fall within scope of CSRD. And obviously, again, it would seem at this point in time, because there have been so many derogations or rather there's a staggered approach to how it's going to be implemented, that as of the 1st January or rather as of financial year ending uh, 2026, those entities who don't fall uh, within the current NFRD regime, so the listed entities, as well as captive insurers and reinsurers, right, who meet certain set criteria, they're going to fall within the CSRD reporting scope. And what we're finding nowadays is, again, there is just a bit of confusion out there because uh, the reporting needs to be carried out in accordance with standards which have been developed by EFRAG. There are a number of these standards in excess of 15 standards. There needs to be assurance. Who's going to provide that assurance? It seems as though there's some form of market consensus. It's going to be the auditors, but... Technically speaking, CSRD doesn't say it needs to be the auditors necessarily, but it needs to be someone who is capable of providing this accreditation. And again, this is where the upskilling comes into play, right? So the auditors, the lawyers, we all need to upskill. We all need to know what we're talking about. I've tried to have a look, and I say tried, I don't say it lightly. I've tried to have a look at these ESRSs. They're no mean feat to understand let alone implement. So I can only understand right now how those in scope undertakings are potentially feeling. And also the interplay, also a bit of a snippet which is related as well, the interplay between the ESRSs and the ISSB standards is very interesting as well, because I very recently had the opportunity as part of a finance Malta cohort to attend a conference in the UK in relation to sustainable finance. And I must say at points it seemed a bit politically driven, 
because at no point in time was it mentioned that the EU is making such progress in terms of reporting from a sustainability perspective. At no point did they mention CSRD, nor did they mention the ESRSs. What they did mention was the standards by the ISSB, which I think uh, are geared towards achieving the exact same goal. But whereas the EU regime focuses on double materiality, so what I mentioned earlier, both the financial as well as the impact, the ISSB standards, if I'm not mistaken, only focuses on the financial and not the impact. So I would, technically speaking, say, and I think, that the EU regime is actually a bit more exhaustive in scope than the ISSB equivalent. But in no way, shape or form do I want to sound as though I'm bashing the ISSB. I haven't really looked into it that much, but that is just a bit of an interesting take on things, most definitely. Wow, thank you so much. And we definitely need to speak again before 2026 looms too close. <laughs> There's an awful lot of work to do. Most definitely. Luke, thank you very much for being with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's all for today. Subscribe now to the FinTalks and follow Finance Malta on all social media platforms to stay updated with all our activities. Till the next podcast.